Well, great to be here. Uh, very excited to be back in our Luke series. I almost forgot what that music was like. Uh, we're going to start with a bit of audience participation. Uh, want a show of hands and some whoops as well, if you like. Don't get too excited. Uh, not quite yet. Um, how, how many of you uh, over the last week or so have either watched, listened to or read the news at some point? Hands up if you, most people in the room have encountered the news. Now keep your hands up for now. Uh, keep your hands up if when you watched or listened to or read the news, there was a report of some kind of conflict or disagreement either between individuals or groups of people or among nations. Pretty much every hand is still up. Okay, they can now go down. It's pretty unavoidable. And here's why. Part of being human involves bumping up, coming into contact with other human beings who very often see the world incredibly differently to us. And very often that leads to friction, conflict and disagreement. No matter how hard we try to avoid it, nothing can fully protect us from this reality. It's like you are sitting there right now with a set of core beliefs that you may not realize it, but you look at the world through. It kind of shapes the way you live and speak, act and plan, hope and dream. And this worldview, it, it might be shared with some other people, but, but certainly not by everyone. Different people have different ways of viewing, thinking of, interacting with the world. For example, there's the religious worldview that kind of assumes there's a God, whoever he or she is, that must be pleased or appeased through a whole series of actions. There are things that we try and do and things that we try not to do in order to try and gain favor with that God to somehow get eternal life when we die. That's the religious worldview. Then there's a spiritual worldview which says there's Probably not a God, but there are forces that are driving things. Maybe that force is karma, maybe the universe itself is driving everything, but we need to try and tap into those spiritual realities to get out of life everything we want. And then there's the secular worldview that says, no, there is no God, and there are no forces, and there is no kind of energy driving anything, that there's simply us and what we can make of it all. Now, of course, there are stacks of other worldviews, whether it's humanism or liberalism, relativism, feminism, pluralism, consumerism, whole stack of other isms, but those are three of the main ones. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, what on earth is this all about? Where on earth is he going with this? There is a reason for bringing all of this up, and it's that every time Jesus teaches, he tends to take one of these worldviews, one of these ways of looking at the world around us, and he tends to deconstruct it, dismantle it, take it apart, showing how it's flawed before then reconstructing it, putting it back together again in line with how he has designed for the whole universe to function and work well. And that is certainly what we find in the passage we're going to be looking at today. 
Having taken time out from our study of Luke's Gospel to work our way through the whole Bible in a mere 20 weeks, we're now returning to part 65 of our Luke series. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. It's actually one of the most famous chapters uh, in all of the Bible, famous because of the stories or the parables that Jesus tells here. In this one chapter, we get the parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost sheep, then the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus tells them quickfire, like bam, 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 no transition points, no application points at the end, just these three stories, quickfire, one after another. So uh, having worked through uh, entire books of the Bible in just a few minutes over the last few weeks. It kind of made sense to at least do the whole chapter in one go this morning. Now just to say, you're not actually going to understand these stories in Luke 15 without first of all understanding verse 1. whole key to understanding this chapter hinges on who is in the crowd to hear these three parables. So let's look at it. Verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. I think this is one of those verses where we can very easily today miss what's actually going on. If we don't grasp the cultural context, we don't get the real weight of hatred behind this verse. Because I think Most of us have been told that a tax collector was pretty much someone who stole money from the Jews. Isn't that right? We've kind of been told that. The reason they were so despised, the reason they were so hated is because they were given permission to gather taxes for Rome. Uh, Rome would say, go and gather 30 pounds, and instead of gathering 30 pounds, they gathered 50 pounds and pocketed the extra themselves. I'm guessing that's what everyone in the room, if you have any kind of church background, that's what you've been told a tax collector was. Truth is, however, it goes way beyond thievery. At the time that Jesus is walking on the earth, at the time that the Gospel of Luke is written, Israel is ruled by Rome. In fact, Rome, at this point in history, rules all the way from England round to India. Let's try and get your head round how massive an empire that was. Not only was the Roman Empire massive, it was also unbelievably brutal. There are historical accounts of Rome conquering a city and then taking up to 20,000 men, women and children stripping them naked and crucifying them on the roads leading up to that city for up to 40 miles away. So that going into the city for supplies, going into the city to visit your family, going into the city to to do some trading or get some work done, you'd have to walk past miles and miles of this horrific suffering just to drive home the message really, you don't want to mess with Rome. They were a brutal, brutal regime. Now, if you rule from India all the way around to England, and you don't have an air force, or you don't have the ability just to press a button and launch weapons, 
The only way you can govern a landmass that huge is with a massive army. And Rome didn't have enough men for the size of army they needed to subdue the empire. And so what happened was, as they conquered a land, they'd hire mercenaries and give them food and weapons and training, and they became part of the legions of Rome. Now here's what we've got to get to the bottom of. How do you fund, how do you supply... How do you feed, how do you train a massive army like this? Through taxes. And on the whole, the tax collectors were Israelites who purchased the right from Rome to raise funds for an oppressive, occupying army that was responsible for the brutal death of hundreds of thousands of their own people. Really, there is no cultural equivalent to the wickedness that was a tax collector in Jerusalem. It'd be like you living next door to a man who had single-handedly funded the murder of your whole family and it being legal. But here's the thing. Tax collectors are gathering round to hear Jesus. And they're not the only ones. We're also told here sinners are there as well. Just to explain, back then, a sinner was pretty much anyone who the Jews viewed as unclean. It's like they were the hopeless cases, that they were treated as outcasts. They were completely ostracized. They were permanently excluded from God. They're they're not allowed in the synagogue. They're not allowed to make sacrifices or to worship with God's people. Not allowed to hear the scriptures read. Completely shut out, excluded from the whole religious life of Israel. And yet, here they are, gathering near to hear Jesus. And as we read on, we find that the tax collectors and sinners aren't the only ones present. Look at verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so you've got your tax collectors and sinners, and now you've got your Pharisees and your teachers of the law. They're like the other end of the spectrum that they live in such a way that is so morally upright, they believe they have kind of earned a level of favor with God that he will not extend to anyone else. They expect there's a certain amount of favor and interaction with God that others aren't going to get. And there's your two worldviews present here in this crowd. You've got people with a religious worldview, who think they can earn their way to God through their religious moralism, through their good behavior. And you've got people with a secular worldview who've lived their whole lives with pretty much no reference to God. And they've been taught to think that as a result, they're permanently shut out. They're excluded. They can't get anywhere near God. And so Jesus gets to work. Jesus begins to do what he does. He deconstructs and he reconstructs. Let's look at it. Verse 3. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. 
Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. See what Jesus is doing here. If you're over here and you think there is absolutely no way God could love you even if you came to him, there's no way because of your past, your background, the stuff you've done, there's no way he could ever forgive you. He's challenging that thinking. He's going, no, 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 no. You're not coming to me. I'm taking the initiative here and I'm coming to you. You're kind of like an ignorant sheep that has got lost, and I'm now coming to find you. And when I find you, it's not going to be, you stupid sheep, it's not what's going on here. I'm going to pick you up, I'm going to hold you in my arms, and I'm going to rejoice. And when I get home with the other 99, I'm calling everyone over to celebrate with me. So he's dismantling, he's taking apart this, oh, I've gone astray, he could never love me, way of thinking. And he also deconstructs the idea that the 99 are good by themselves. I mean, forget about that other one. He just dismantled, took apart that whole way of thinking. Then watch how he puts it together again. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And so, this side over here thinks that heaven rejoices over God punishing them for being such bad people, which is why they aren't coming anywhere near God. I mean, who wants to experience that judgment and punishment? And God's going, no, no, no. You've got this wrong, that there is more celebration in your coming to me than in you being judged by me. And this side over here wrongly thinks there's more celebration over their goodness than over the repentance of those who they deem to be wicked. And they just found out that's not true either. It's like Jesus rips down both belief systems and starts rebuilding another one. But before it can really sink in, he just dives straight into the next story. There's no transition, no pause for breath. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Now it helps to understand that back then a silver coin was kind of the equivalent of a day's wage. And we're told that she had 10 days of wages saved up. So Back in that time period, she would have been a pretty wealthy woman. You see, back then, most people lived day to day. She has 10 days wages. So, actually, it's not that big a deal that she's lost just one coin. She still has nine days wages left. And it's definitely not that big a deal. You need to start ripping your house apart trying to find it. 
But that's what she does here. So Jesus is deconstructing the fact that the tax collector and sinner feel useless. I mean, I'm just a solitary silver coin. Look at the nine coins. Can you imagine what you could get for nine silver coins? Can't get much with me. Nine silver coins. You you could buy all sorts of things. One silver coin, it's kind of like the change you lose down the back of your sofa. Pretty worthless. And Jesus goes, no, I'm tearing the house to pieces looking for this change down the back of the sofa, even though I already have nine coins. See the deconstruction. However useless, however worthless you feel, Jesus still cares deeply about you. And then the deconstruction over here is, well, we've got nine coins. Who needs one more? What's the point of losing sleep over people who are a bit like a bit of worthless loose change? And Jesus is going, oh, we need the change all right. He's blowing them both up. And here's how he puts it back together again. Verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Once again, there is unbelievable joy and celebration over finding what was lost. But before we can let this sink in, Jesus launches straight into his third story. Now, the third story is the big one. It's also the most well-known. Verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Let me just pause and say, I think some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about here. Following Jesus can be very difficult at times because he will make you confront the wrong things in your life. Most of the world simply numbs their mind to the reality of the self-destructive tendencies inside themselves. But Jesus will force the issue. So when you stare at your sin, you stare at what you've done, and decide instead of letting Jesus deal with it, to run from him, it will always feel like freedom at first. I mean, when the younger son goes to a far-off land and is squandering his wealth on wild parties, you think he's missing his father's house? Not at all. He's free. He's free from his father's rules, free from his father's house, free to live exactly as he wants. But here's the thing. If you struggle with something that just doesn't go away easily, I don't know, lust or anger or bitterness or self-pity or comfort-eating. There's always going to be this temptation as you begin to follow Jesus that maybe it would be a whole lot easier to run back to those things. 
but refusing sonship, saying, no, 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 thank you. Give me what's mine and just let me go. It almost always ends up leading to slavery to that thing. Let me show you how it works itself out. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Let's just pause there for a moment. Both sides, both groups in the audience, at this point are probably thinking, okay, here we go. Because if you're a tax collector or a sinner, you see the son going back to the father and you're assuming he's going to have to become a slave in order to be allowed back in. So they're going, oh, there's the hook. And this side, the moral religious guys, they're going, oh, here's the hook because they're going to come back to God and God is really going to judge them hard now. Let's keep reading because both are so incredibly wrong. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy even to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is now found. And so they began to celebrate. It's like this whole idea of we're going to get back. And we're going to have to do all of these things in order to try to make God love us again, for God to somehow justify us, for God to be convinced to walk with us. And so the son in the story shows up and he, he's kind of groveling in the dirt saying, look, I, I'll just be your servant. I'll just be a slave. What does the father say? God is so wrong. You're, you're my son. You're not a servant. In Acts 17, God says to the Apostle Paul, God isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. Listen, ultimately you can't win God's favor by serving him. He doesn't need anything. The things he's asking of you are for you. They're for your joy. They're because they're what's best for you. It's not for him. 
I mean, come on. Are we really going to worship God who's like, oh, I'd really love to do that, but I'm really stuck. I can't do it unless these people step in and help me out. Is that the God we're worshipping here? How weak a God, how impotent a God, if he's going, are there all these things I'd like to do, but this guy, he's just not doing them, and so we're really stuck now. That's completely ridiculous. But it's what a lot of people think. Oh, I'll try and do these things for you. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're purchased by Jesus' work on the cross. It's not your work. You can't earn this thing. I've given it to you. You know, there'll be people in this room right now who are living with the equivalent of an orphan mentality. It's as though you have cut yourself off from your heavenly Father. You've assumed that stuff you've done, stuff going on in your life right now, or your background, your past, excludes you and means that you are shut out. And there is absolutely no need to think that way. You are not an orphan, you are a son. You are a daughter, not because of your works, not because of your behavior, but because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Let's keep going. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out, and notice this, pleaded with him. Now here's where I think we need to be really very careful. I mean, if we show grace and mercy to the tax collector and sinner but we show absolutely no grace and mercy to the older brother. If the hardest, darkest of life gets all the grace and the mercy and the love, but the religious bigot gets none, we've completely missed the point of what Jesus is saying and doing here. The whole point is there is no us and them. The same devil that wars against and is out to destroy the tax collectors and sinners is warring against and seeking to destroy the older brother. Both need saving. And if the cross is powerful enough to save one, it's powerful enough to save all. And so there really is no room for any of us in this room feeling superior to anyone else. Let's finish this out. Verse 28, but he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who's squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you, you, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
How do you know this? Jesus doesn't give us any application points. Like at other times, he'll tell a parable, the disciples will say, we just don't get it. He'll pull them to one side, he'll explain it to them. He'll say, now go and do likewise. There is no point of application in Luke 15. In fact, what happens next, in, in chapter 16, Jesus turns away from the crowds, gathers his disciples, and tells them a completely different story. Now, I was tempted to help Jesus out this morning. Uh, I was tempted to kind of fill in the gaps that he leaves here. Add my own application for you. Actually, I don't think that's our greatest need right now. I simply want you to see Jesus for who he truly is. More than anything else, I am hoping, I am praying that you would see the Jesus of Luke 15 and it would help you make sense of the rest of the Gospels. Ultimately, it would help you make sense of your own life. I mean, do you want to to understand the occasion in the Gospels when a prostitute walks into the room, finds Jesus, falls at his feet, crying on them, lets her hair down, wipes his feet. Do you know why she's doing that? It's because until this point, she is alienated from God. She has absolutely no hope of salvation, no hope of restoration, no hope of repentance, completely shut out. And yet here's Jesus saying, I have come for people like you. Do you understand why Zacchaeus, the tax collector, presses in to hear Jesus? Please, let's not turn Zacchaeus into a romanticized character in a Sunday school song. He was a wicked, evil, horrible man who saw his own people slaughtered and got rich off it. And Jesus turns to him and goes, let's go to your house, let's eat together. Why? Because there's coming this day when the gospel is going to be unleashed on the world. And that day is now. And Jesus is saying, I'm pursuing what was lost. I'm pulling out the furniture. I'm lighting lamps. I'm sweeping floors. I'm leaving the 99. I'm going in search of my lost sheep, my lost coin, my prodigal sons. Listen, if you don't understand why the religious elite were so infuriated with Jesus, it's all here in Luke 15. He's saying to them, this epic celebration, this party, the thing I'm doing with these tax collectors and sinners, they're a precursor, they're a sign of what's to come. I'm doing now what will be done on the final day. What I'm doing now is an example of what the gospel actually is. I'm demonstrating what the good news is from this moment on. Absolutely anyone can come. Absolutely Anyone can eat and drink and enjoy being close to me. If you're here today, and hand on heart, you don't know Jesus, then just see him for who he is. 
I'm praying that whatever is stopping you, blocking you, responding to him would fade into insignificance as you see Jesus, arms open wide, welcoming you, calling you even now to come closer, to experience in reality for yourself the indescribable joy of knowing him. And if you're here today and you already know Jesus, then here's the thing. The way people see Jesus flows out into how they see other people. The way you see him, the way you view him, the way you think of him, that trickles out. And so, if you kind of see Jesus as this sort of pharisaic master of morality who stands over you with a big stick demanding perfection, then what you'll do is you'll try desperately hard to live like that. And when you're losing, you will beat yourself up. And when you're winning, you'll be smug and look down on everyone else. And in so doing, you become the older brother in this story. You'll keep working really hard and will go to great lengths to build this giant wall around yourself and your family where people like you are allowed in, but nobody who struggles is allowed anywhere near. But if you see Jesus reaching out to the most wicked the most deplorable human being you can imagine, and treating them with love and mercy and grace. And if you see that there is absolutely nothing in your own past that could ever disqualify you, that however far you go away from him, you are still exactly the same kind of person that he can forgive and save if you just see him today for who he really is, it will completely transform your life. So my hope is that this message would explode in our hearts. It would change the way we see the church, change the way we live our lives, change the way we see our neighbors, change the way we feel when other people fall into sin, when we fall into sin. We might keep seeing and savouring Jesus so that we'd invest our lives into seeing more sheep being found and more coins being gathered and more prodigals being welcomed home. That we would open the doors of this church, we'd open the doors wide of our homes, we'd open the doors wide of our lives to the people around us. That we would demonstrate with our words with our lifestyle, with our actions, we welcome you, just as Jesus welcomes us.